Hey, it's Brett Featherston and Rob Flint. We are the Insignificant Others. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing well, Brett. Good, good. You know, uh, I think we've got to, once again, explain the whole name of the Insignificant Others, right? Just in case anybody's confused. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you and I understand that we're pretty insignificant. You were very insignificant. <laughs> yes, yes. We're... I think we've had some guests on that, that have, have looked at the name and said, wait wait a second, why am I on this? You're calling me insignificant? And then they meet us and they know why. Yeah, and then they know why, exactly. This is not about the guests at all. We are the insignificant others. Uh, the name came about because as we were trying to figure out what to call us, uh, we did realize that our wives are much more popular than we are. So Rob and I both have a beautiful wife. It's not the same person. It's two different women. But when people refer to their spouse as the significant other, we are the insignificant yes. others. Yes. Absolutely. I know my place. So I, I have to say that because this podcast, it was with Paul Rasmussen. Paul Rasmussen is the senior pastor at Highland Park United Methodist Church, and he is definitely not insignificant. Highland Park United Methodist Church, including Rob and myself, has about 15,000 members, which makes it Definitely one of, if not the largest, congregations of the United Methodist Church in the state of Texas, but probably also in the country. And Paul's been a big part of that growth. It's still growing. It's over 100 years old, as we talked about. And and I thought his story was absolutely fascinating. Yes. And he's a fourth-generation Methodist minister from Louisiana. He has a passion for basketball. He actually, before he got into ministry, he spent time in sports marketing and was an assistant basketball coach at Centenary College in Louisiana, and he talks about that. Yeah, he definitely has a passion for basketball. Which got me to think, which current or former college or professional basketball coach would would make a great pastor or a great leader of a church? All right, so the one that comes to my mind, that it just everything I've read or watched on TV about him, it's just, just a phenomenal human being, is uh, John Wooden. You know, I, yeah, John, John Wooden's a, a, a legend, an inspirational leader. Yeah. Won a lot of championships. For me, it was, it was Dean Smith, former you know, coach at University of North Carolina. Bill Self came to my mind. If... if Dean Smith had a church. Would it have to be called the Deaner Dome? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I was thinking that Bobby Knight would be a great hellfire and brimstone preacher. He he would be. He would. He be. would scare people into, he, in, he into would, going straight. He would take a literal interpretation of the Bible and and <laughs> just heap a ton of guilt on you, <laughs> and maybe kick kick you in the rear while you walk out the door. Yes, well, Coach Coach K, I think would be good. Coach K, although I you know. I thought about that, but then I, I, I thought Coach K would make a great pastor of a Church of Christ church. Yeah, he he's, seems the Baptist. He's yeah. He's Coach of Baylor. Yes, yes. Um, what about Popovich? Greg Popovich. Pop would have the shortest sermons you've ever heard. <laughs> Read I'm the Bible. I'm not saying it again. I, I told you this last it's week. In the I'm Bible. not repeating myself. It's in yeah. the Bible. Don't ask me. Bill yeah. Jackson? Phil Jackson, maybe maybe a Buddhist. Do Buddhists have yeah. a preacher? He's I, I, Mr. Zen. Um, Buddhists have what monks? Yes, but they, I don't. I don't know how they do their church service. Yeah, neither do I. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But uh, I, you know, I think Paul's story 
Here's the thing that I love about it, and you're going to hear this on the podcast, is that Paul did agree to do episode number two. So we've got to go back. So this one is going to be his story. We've got to go back and meet with him, hopefully soon. And I'd love to have the theological conversation with him. No, me too. I think, you know, any opportunity where you can sit down with the the minister, the head minister of your church, and have a, a good philosophical discussion about religion and God and and how that fits in your life, I, I think that would be great. Yeah. You know, I, I, I won't say that I know Paul well. I know him. We say hi to each other when we see each other at church or in the neighborhood or whatever. Um, we're very close to the same age. I know people that grew up with him in Shreveport. But to sit down and talk to him was, uh, he, he's, you know, it's like, not that he's got the, the fame of, of a movie star, but he's kind of famous in, in, in this area. And he, he's the real deal. I mean, he was just an open book and was so pleasant to be around, just such a nice person. It, it, it almost made me feel guilty. <laughs> just like, it's like, okay, so you can do it. Uh, well, well, <laughs> which may, so there's, there's no Bob Knight reference there, right? No, oh. <laughs> no, I think Bob Knight, what you see is what you get there too. But no. I think with Paul, what you see is what you get. Well, you know, he, he is, he, you know, he'll talk about this. He was in the right place at the right time. <clears throat> he took advantage of the opportunity that was given him. Obviously he had a higher calling and he's, he's, risen up to the occasion to say the least. He's taken a church that's over 100 years old and 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 is leading it into the the next 100 years laying down the foundation for that. He was blessed obviously, he would say this himself, he does on the podcast, but to cross paths with a legendary local minister, his predecessor Mark Craig. Yeah. Who gave him his first job at the church, which mm-hmm. is very interesting and how all of that turned out. Hired him on the spot. Hired for the, the the first and only hire on the spot that Mark Craig ever did. Right, right. So, so, so I think we've got to say this is episode one of two. The first Paul. This is like our first two part podcast. Is it, do you call it a series? No, because I mean, I guess you, yeah, it's just just a two part podcast. So yeah, so this is episode one of the. To be named later, episode two. <laughs> it's kind of like Star Wars. Our we first, know we're going to have one. But. Our first return guest. Yes, yes. So I really hope you enjoy this. We had a ball with Paul. He is the real deal, and his story is fascinating. So I really hope you enjoy it. Um, All right. Uh, Rob and I are with Paul Rasmussen. Senior pastor at Highland Park United Methodist Church. So, so Paul, when people ask you what do you what you do, do you say you're a pastor, a minister, man of the cloth? What what do you how do you refer to yourself? <laughs> uh, you know, it depends on the context. Now, I, I mean, generally now I just tell them, "Hey, I'm the senior minister at a, at a local Methodist church," and I kind of leave it at that. But uh, depending on your environment, I was in Colorado one time at a Tom Petty concert, and I was sitting next to a guy, and we had been through about a third of the concert, and then there was a lull. And he he was with his wife, and I think they were celebrating their 30th wedding anniversary. And this is going to sound odd coming from a minister, but he had just uh, inhaled from a large joint. <laughs> and as he inhaled, he leaned over and he said, so what do you do? 
And I said, I'm a minister. <laughs> and I swear I thought he was going to pass out. He went to gagging and coughing. He was embarrassed. And he and his wife literally, we'd been there together for over an hour. That's and hilarious. Having, and we didn't know him, but we were having a good time with him. And we were not partaking of what he was, but uh, but he, they got up and moved. And so uh, I, I do recognize that sometimes when people say, what do you do? And you tell them you're a minister, they either jump in really energetically and they want to tell you all about their relationship with God, or they shut down and go the other way. Uh, so it kind of depends. But I just tell them I'm a senior minister of a local church. Interesting. So is there a difference between pastor, minister? Is that is it all synonymous? Uh, it's mostly... Part of the vernacular, just born out of different denominational styles. Yeah. Uh, Pastor is kind of a non-denominational or maybe a Baptist word. In general, I'm painting broad strokes here. Ministers more from uh, Episcopalian or Methodist tradition. And I think yeah. around here, official official title, senior minister, but I mostly go by pastor. I think my email says Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul, yeah. All right. So you've been with Highland Park United Methodist Church now for 14 years? Around 14? Yeah, be my, so I'm going to my 16th year. 16th, yeah. year. 16th year. So 16th year, and you've had about six now as the senior minister. Yeah, I can't even remember. Maybe four or five. Four or five, yeah. But I've been here 16, which is almost impossible to believe. You talk about a cliche that time goes by so fast. It it seems like I just started. And I know that sounds bizarre, but it seems like I just started. On the other hand, every time Christmas rolls around, I think we just had Christmas last right. Sunday. How is it? But it just goes by so fast. But yeah, six, 16 years. Crazy. So taking over from Mark Craig had to be an intimidating <laughs> task. I mean, Mark was, look, you're, you're a rock star in, 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 the, uh, in the faith community, and what you've done with the church has been fantastic. But you took over. It's like Bono taking over from Mick Jagger, because Mark <laughs> Craig was equally... Uh, I mean, he was up there and, and very well respected. How was it taking over from him? Well, first, rock stars may, may be a dangerous term for those of us in, in, in ministry, but uh, Mark was very, very popular in the best sense of the word and for very good reasons. He was as gifted a communicator as I've ever heard, just an incredibly gifted communicator, particularly with men. Uh, he was really able to reach men. You look across the board, uh, Churches are more filled with women than men, and that's great for the women, but not so much for the men. And Mark could really speak to men. So I joined the church, actually, because I attended a baptism here. But this is before I went into ministry. My wife and I just joined the church because we liked Mark Craig so much. We thought, this we can relate to this guy. He was relevant. He was funny. He was witty. Uh, but he hit you right between the teeth in a way that you almost liked. And so we were really drawn here. So I, it never occurred to me that I would be raised up under his tutelage, and then ultimately take over for him. There was no plan to do that. I was just real fortunate at the right place at the right time. And I will tell you, kind of to answer your question, it's pretty intimidating because he is such a gifted communicator, and the worst thing you can do is try to replicate someone's style if it's not your own. And I have some similarities to Mark, but we have a lot of differences as well. So I was I was nervous. Now, thankfully, he we had a long runway and he was really able to kind of develop me and, more importantly, develop the congregation and help them, uh, I guess, accept me kind of warmly. But it was a it was a challenge, not unlike coaching. You know, in coaching, you either replace somebody that's well-hated or really well-loved, yeah. and it, it's easier to replace somebody that's well-hated. Mark was really well-loved. Describe the moment when 
Mark told you that he was going to groom you or would like to groom you as his eventual successor? Well, first, just contextually, it's I've had an unusual, I hate to call it a career, but a career arc in that it's very unusual for a, an associate pastor to stay at the church they grow up in and then assume the leadership. They want to move you to a different, smaller congregation and then bring you back? Almost always you move, and not just once, but you move repeatedly. And I tell people this, analogous to coaching, my journey here would be like if you were selling insurance and one day you said, I want to be a college football coach. And so you quit selling insurance. Your first job was at the University of Texas or LSU or Alabama, pick any one of the marquee programs, and you were an assistant in the film room. And then you evolved, and one day you woke up, and you were the head coach at the same university, and you never had to move to East Tennessee State or Mark, you know, and right. it's the same thing. And so the day that Mark called me in and said, I want to talk to you about something, I mean, I didn't even know how to respond. Because from a paradigm standpoint, I was totally expecting to to, to move and move around, and the thought of being at Highland Park, uh, you know, maybe one day if you move five or six times, you might get invited back. The thought of being here. So when he called me, I just said, you know, you, surely you're not serious. And, of course, it involves some other people, including the bishop. And then we have a whole process for that. But um, it was uh, – I, mean, I was speechless. So you're talking about Mark's uh, ability to communicate, and yours is very strong, too. Remember, so we've been members of the church for – 19, 20 years, roughly. And, and same thing as you, Mark is the reason we joined the church. And I remember speaking to him one time, I'd come back from a meeting where we heard this college professor, Harvard professor that specialized in the art of persuasion. And he started talking about, you know, it was about public speaking and how you persuade people. And as I listened to him, what Mark did was very similar to what he was saying were best practices in that. And so I remember asking Mark if he had some formal training on it, and he said no, he just kind of developed it on <laughs> his own. But your style is different than Mark's, but equally effective. What kind of training have you had in, in public speak? I mean, because you get up 30 minutes every, yeah. every, every <laughs> uh, uh, service. How did you, you develop that? Yeah, 30 minutes, four times a week. It's um, – you know, I, I laugh because – if I think too much about my style of public speaking, then I get pretty nervous and I think, oh, you know, who would want to listen to this? Uh, so I don't think about it too often. I've had no no public training at all. I had some on-the-job training in two different categories that I think helped me. One, when I was a college basketball coach, uh, during a timeout, you only have 30, 45 seconds to communicate something which could be pretty serious. And so you have to learn how to boil down and look in people's eyes immediately and get something across that you hope the players will execute. Uh, now, at the time, I didn't know I was learning how to speak, but in hindsight, I recognized that was pretty good training. You right. know, in a limited amount of time, and here's what we got to do. Um, the second thing was, in between coaching and ministry, I worked for a, a sports marketing company, and I was in sales, and I had to kind of sell our service. And so I had to make a lot of presentations in boardrooms. And you get shot down enough in boardrooms and walk out of there with your tail between your legs. You think, oh, I better figure out how to do this better. And there again, at the time, I didn't know that I was honing a skill. But in hindsight, I recognized making all those presentations in all those boardrooms was was pretty helpful. But you also, your father was a minister. 
grandfather was a minister. There's four generations, if I'm not mistaken, Correct. right? So I would assume that, that you were uh, sitting in the classroom, so to speak, for, for several years, observing, watching others deliver their sermons and and taking yeah. mental notes on on what to do, what not to do, and then incorporating that into your style? Yeah, my, my, uh, my grandfather was from Vienna, Austria, and he had this really thick, thick, regal Austrian accent, and he was a very formal but really fine orator, and I'm sure he rolls over in his grave <laughs> at my <laughs> lack of command of the English language. Um, and, but then my father came after him, and he, of course, he didn't have a Austrian accent, but he was a really, really gifted communicator. And there's no doubt, I mean, some of it's probably just DNA, but um, I watched my dad communicate both from the pulpit, but oddly enough, he was also the local weatherman for the ABC affiliate in Louisiana, in Shreveport, Louisiana, when I was growing up. No, you could never get away with that. So now. did he incorporate a weather forecast in his sermons? <laughs> Quite often. Uh, but he was, yeah, he was, he was the local weatherman at 6 and 10 on the ABC affiliate. So uh, he was very gifted at, at public communication. And I guess just watching him, watching him work, something probably rubbed off. I love to think that it was highly trained and I knew what I was doing, but... I'm, I'm not. Sure, I'm still sure that I don't know. I, mean, I don't think I know what I'm doing now. But okay, so l- let's let's go back. I apologize for the stream of consciousness. So we're jumping along the, <laughs> uh, the chronological timeline a lot. So you grew up in Shreveport, correct? Grew up in, and and you were assistant basketball coach at Centenary, correct? How did you get into basketball? How did you <laughs> want to be a, a coach? Uh, you know, I wanted to be a coach. Pretty much my whole life, maybe from middle school on, basketball for me, on, on, a, on a serious note, I, I love my father deeply. We had a wonderful relationship, but he had a lot of demons as a minister, and he was incredible in the pulpit, and he was an incredible leader of people. But in his own personal life, he had a lot of, a lot of demons that he brought home with him. And basketball really for me, not trying to over-dramatize it, but it became my sanctuary. Uh, being in the gym was my respite, and so I lived in the gymnasium. When there was turmoil at home, I was in the gym. And so basketball is a safe place for me. I was very shy and introverted socially. So when other kids were out doing what they do in high school, I'd shoot free throws. <laughs> it was just comfortable for me. So basketball was kind of my a- avenue of, um, or I guess my therapy at the time. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it and really was obsessed with it. I really wanted to coach, but I knew I couldn't play collegially. And I'd come over here to SMU and just talk my way into being a student manager on the hopes that I could take a lot of notes and learn a lot of the game. And I did. And then um, I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Richmond in sports marketing and talked my way into an assistance job at Centenary and loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Thought I would do it with my whole life. Still love it. And there was a healthy reason, which we can talk about, why I left it. But um, I knew since since middle school that I wanted to be on, on the yeah. court. So – you left it. What was the healthy reason? <laughs> I got married. Uh, <laughs> yeah, being a coach yeah. in any sport in in, uh, in college is is not good for a family life. Because you're going to move yeah. a lot. Well, there's an old saying in coach, coaching, you end up raising everybody else's kids but your own. Right. And that really happened. We didn't have kids, but I was engaged for a year, a full season of coaching, and then we were married for a full season of coaching. And I just recognized that it wasn't tenable for me. And I wanted to clean up a lot of stuff that my father had maybe not done with his family at the expense of his career or 
you know, family uh, to promote his career. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so family for me has always been absolute non-negotiably priority one and being engaged for a year and then married for a year. I was on the road all the time and involved in the crises of you know, 17 and 18 year old young men all the time. Now I loved it, but I knew my family is going to suffer and we really wanted to have children. And so we sat down one night and talked about it and said, let's, let's get out of this and let's settle down. And so I took a job at a sports marketing company. I thought I'd have a normal career, whatever that is. And we packed our bags and moved to Dallas. So it seems to me almost that you were fighting the call to ministry. You did not want, it almost sounds like you didn't want to follow in your dad's footsteps there. So you, you were coaching, you were in sports marketing. What was the call that made you decide that, okay, I, I need to give this a shot? Well, I, I, I did resist the call. And call's a weird term. Um, we talk about a lot of ministry being called, and I really do believe that I have been called into ministry. I believe in the, the thing called the call. Um, I did wrestle with it. I felt in my heart that I belonged in ministry, but I had seen such turmoil, institutional turmoil with my father in the local church. And turmoil at home based on my father's role in the local church. And it was very toxic. And so kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, I thought, well, I'm a faithful person. I love the Lord. I love God. I love scripture. But I don't want to get in this muckety-muck called institutional religion. I'm just going to run my course myself and be a faithful person myself. I have no need to share it with anybody. And I certainly don't want to share it through the platform of institutional religion. Now, that was all immature and foolish because, you know, you can make your own choices in life. But I just seen so much toxicity in, in, in my dad's life and in his career relative to his ministry. And so I thought, I'll never do that. And people would ask me from, you know, they ask you as a preacher's kid from day one, are you going to, you going to be like your dad? And I thought, well, no, if you only knew, I'm not going to be like my dad. And so I thought in order to not do that, you don't dare go in ministry. Let's do something else. Um, that changed when, I went to work in the corporate world in sports marketing and was not particularly fulfilled in that. And I began to evaluate my life and what I liked and what I missed about coaching was not the games. It was the crisis management with the players. Uh, I liked being involved in their life. They break up with a girlfriend They They lose a mother. Yeah. Uh, they get kicked out of school. They get arrested. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, knucklehead, if you, if you bring your faith element, to that, that's called ministry. <laughs> and you can make your own choices in life, and you don't necessarily have to replicate what happened to your father. Right, right. So so you decide, you, you sat down with Mark, right, and talked about doing something at this church. Yeah, it was before I met Mark, though, uh, something interesting happened, and I, I, I hold it now. If you kind of assess the blessings of your life, this is certainly among my biggest I was asked to do a basketball clinic in East Texas, over in Marshall, Texas, and it was run by some faith-based folks. And they asked me, would I come over and run the clinic? But when I did, would I preach at a Vesper service that night? I had never prepared a, quote, sermon in my life. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. I just took on the challenge, and I wrote a sermon, and I went over and did the basketball clinic. There's about 200 kids, counselors there. I did the clinic, and I had... Ashley was with me. My wife was with me. And we got in the car, in the, literally in the woods in, in Marshall, Texas, 
we got in the car after the night was over and Ashley looked at me square in the eye and she said, you are an idiot (laughs) if you don't do this with your life. And I thought that's unbelievable because I was really wrestling with, I really belong in ministry, but I hadn't told her and she didn't marry a minister. And I thought, oh, you know, I I can't spring this on her. She broke the ice and she literally told me, she goes, you're an idiot. She doesn't, she hadn't often called me an idiot, but she did that night. And she said, uh, you're an idiot if you don't do this with your life. So we drove back to Dallas that night. I got on the phone the next morning and, and began to call people that I knew that were somehow connected to ministry. And one of them said, do you know Mark Craig? He's your pastor. And I said, no, I just hear him preach. And they said, well, you need to go see Mark Craig right away. And so I scheduled an appointment with Mark and just came in here to talk to him. It's unbelievable. I mean, that's that's the, uh, I don't want to say overnight success story because it's been a long, long road, but the, the road to success has been really paved for you. I'd love to tell you I had a plan and that I had something to do with it, and I, I didn't at all. It's, it was God, providence, however you want to articulate it. I walked in Mark Craig's office. I didn't know him from Adam. I just heard him preach like you all. Absolutely loved him, and but had never met him. And I, I came in to meet him, not looking for a job, just to find out what does – my father had died, and I thought, what does one do if one wants to go into ministry? And at the advice of some friends, they said, you need to go see Mark. So I did. And he asked me that day what I had done. And when I told him about my coaching background, uh, as fate would have it, they had just they had just fired. We actually fire people in the church, which is weird. But uh, <laughs> he, he had just fired their director of recreational ministry. And he said, uh, he didn't know me from Adam, but he knew I was a coach. He said, would you be interested in running our recreational ministry? And I said, look, I'm not here for a job. I just want to know what to do if I'm called. He said, well, we'll put you to work at the church if you're interested. And I thought, well, you know, I can run a gym in my sleep. I can sweep a gym and run leagues. That's easy enough. And so I called my boss at the sports marketing company and quit the next day. And the, this church hired me to run the gym. And, uh, and Mark will tell you to this day, I'm the first person he's ever hired on the spot. And so I don't know what it was, but we just kind of bonded and connected. And he thought this guy might be able to work. And so they hired me to run the gym. So I, I quit what I was doing, jumped in seminary and and then you went, started going to Perkins School. Mm-hmm. It was right here. We were in Dallas, and I, you know, I looked around, thought, "Oh, I'll go to Duke or New York City or somewhere crazy." And Ashley said, "Well, our house is here. Why don't, yeah. How about we yeah. just do it here?" And so I enrolled at SMU at Perkins, and it worked out really great. So, what what's seminary school like? And and right or wrong, I always have this this vision in my head of this this kind of. I mean, obviously, the the, the topic itself is is great and and can be inspirational depending on how you decide to consume it and apply it and whatnot. But, but it also to me seems like it would be something that would be somewhat boring, you know, um, you know, like like, like you're wearing, you're wearing like, you know, monk clothes. Yeah. I think of being in an abbey. You're hoeing and humming and chanting and, and this, and (laughs) there's, there's lots of quiet periods. So, so what is, what is the real truth behind the way seminary school is run and, and what's it like to be a part of that process? Yeah, I remember the great writer Scott Turow wrote a book one year called 1L. It was about the first year of law school. It's a great book. Kind of opened up people's eyes to law school. Maybe we should do one about seminary, <laughs> one, you know, 1L for seminaries. But um, 
I'm laughing because I really felt the same way. I, I've always been deeply spiritual, and I've always been highly involved in the local church. I was terrified to go to seminary partly for the same reason. Uh, I didn't know, you know, you sit around and do Gregorian chant all day, or, you know, what do you do? Uh, for starters, it's way more academic than most people realize. The name seminary, they probably need to get a new name because that's kind of frightening in itself. If you can really think of it as you're getting a master's in theology, okay, it's a different perspective. You're really studying the history of the ancient church. You're studying all the latest scholarship on um, biblical scholarship. You know, what is the Bible? Where do these 66 books come from? Were they really written by Paul? Were they really written by Moses? So you do an exhaustive scholarly academic assessment of the scriptures and the history of the local church. And there's some other categories too that you have to study, but it's a long process. But it, it was way more academic than I had anticipated uh-huh. and far less communal. Now, maybe it's different at other seminaries. Uh-huh. And there's some of that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but for me, it was a sharpening of the axe in how to prepare and be informed theologically. Um, I didn't get so much into the real communal and I'm still not very good at Gregorian chant. <laughs> is there a greater amount of guilt that goes along with, let's say, failing an exam in seminary school? <laughs> if you fail, if you fail New Testament, and I've already got like 20 canned excuses that I would say to my seminary instructor or professor, you know, I've already asked for God's forgiveness, or yeah. <laughs> he's okay with me failing this exam. I will tell you, I, I will tell you, there are people that show up at seminary that are. Uh, they're shocked though when they when they don't do well academically because they do kind of think it's just a feel good, nothing but a big grace dispenser, um, which it can be, but it's serious. It's serious. Nah. Those, those exams are they were brutal. Yeah, <laughs> they were yeah. brutal. I mean, world class scholars talking to you about the New Testament and the Old Testament, uh, and I don't think I failed anything, but I, I certainly didn't make all A's. So yeah, I guess there is a little bit of guilt. You leave thinking, uh oh, if I can't master this class, you know, how can I possibly teach like, this? I mean, you didn't get a B in grace, did you? <laughs> it'll give me only A's. <laughs> only A's in grace. You can't fail you grace. Know, only it's the only class. It's, it's, it's pass fail and there's only only one option. That's funny. So are, are is there spirited debate in in theology school? I mean, can you like you said, you've got these these great academics that know so much about the Bible. Can you debate them about, wait a second, how do you know that that's really what they're trying to say there? Well, absolutely. There's a ton of spirited debate because people really do come from, I wouldn't say all walks. It's not that broad. I mean, they're localized in their faith. They generally come from some denominational background. But that in and of itself Bring, invites a whole bunch of different perspectives on the scripture. Is it literal? Is it not? Is it supposed to be a scientific treatise? Is it not? Is it meant to be historical in every single genre of text in the Bible, or is some of it allegory? You know, there's all those kind of things, and everybody's at a different place on that on that spectrum. And so, one thing I learned in seminary that I didn't know going in is it's highly uh, deconstructionist. By that I mean they really try to deconstruct everything that you've been taught about the Bible and about church and about God. Now, they do that not to leave you deconstructed. They do that so that you can rebuild it with your own understanding and your own uh, command of history and Scripture. But that deconstructionist part is really alarming to a lot of people. They go to seminary, and they can't imagine why anybody would would want to suggest that possibly maybe Paul 
didn't write all of Paul's letters. Maybe somebody wrote in his name. Well, if you grew up in Sunday school and they never mentioned that to you, right? it'll freak you out. And so there's a lot of spirited debate. <laughs> and the spectrum between conservative understanding of religion and liberal understanding is also vast in, within seminary. And so you get, uh, you get a lot of that debate as well. So I think that's one of the things that I love about your sermons, because you'll, you'll quote a scripture, but then you go back and explain it's, but you know, in the Greek, it was this word and this word and that. And when this was written 2000 years ago, it meant this. And, uh, I think that has a lot to do with the way that you appeal to people. As you prepare your sermons now, do you have to go back and get some of those old books from school? Oh yeah. I got a whole office full right behind you. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, you don't you don't have that all in recall. <laughs> I have an office full. Uh, I'm right. I'm a hundred yards from uh, you know SMU's theology library, and then our actual church library is one of the best I've ever seen. And so, no, I, well, I spend a lot of time in the library still. What seminary told me, you know, you don't. I guess it's like undergrad as well. I didn't memorize anything, but it, it taught me how maybe to study and how to dig, you know, how to dig deep and and research. I, I wish I could have remembered it all, but um, I still have to apply those skills, but. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a challenge. It's a scripture is a challenging text yeah. because a, it's not a book. It's sixty six books, written by multiple authors over thousands of years, in multiple different genres, and so to say the Bible says is probably a disservice because when you say well the Bible says and you really got to deal with everything else the Bible says right you know, about whatever topic. Um, and contradictions. So absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, but seminary really helped me parse that out and figure that out. And I just feel obligated from the pulpit to try to. You don't want to bore people with it, but you at least want to give them a, a foothold on how to look at scripture. Maybe. Yeah. And so, and to give our listeners just kind of a, a setting here, we're in Paul's office here at the church right now, and it looks like a CEO's office. And, and really, you are the CEO of yeah. one of the largest. Methodist congregations in the state and, and in the country, but we interrupted him preparing for a sermon. So there are, I can see about four <laughs> or five different books, several pieces of paper spread around. Look, I, I'm not throwing you under the bus, but you're not the neatest person in the world. <laughs> yeah, don't tell. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm really curious about how you prepare your sermons. Uh, do you have a a set plan that you do on a regular basis? Uh I get asked, probably the number one question I get asked is, how do you come up with stuff to preach about? And, you know, when do you do it? And the best answer is if, if it weren't for Sunday, I probably would not write a sermon. It, you know, you get jammed up against that deadline and that pressure makes you think, okay, I, I not that I got to, but I get to say something to people today and I get to represent somewhat frightening. You think, okay, I'm going to represent God in some respect and orient people towards a biblical truth. Um, but nonetheless, your human frailty gets in and you, procrastinate, and then you think, oh, I got Sunday coming up, and then you got to get with the program. Um, so I'd love to tell you I had a ready-made formula, and this is what I do, and it works out like that. And I know some men and women that are a lot more methodical than I am. Uh, I'm just not wired that way. I have lots and lots and lots of thoughts rolling around my head, and I write them down. I carry little notebooks with me, and I write them down, and I wake up in the middle of the night and have a notebook by my bed, and I write it down and think, oh, I may want to talk about that. And so I got kind of folders and files full of stuff I want to talk about. And then one thing that does happen when you do find yourself having to preach every week, your radar goes way up. Your radar goes up for illustrative material. You think, how am I going to illustrate this truth? And you start writing those things down. I don't use them immediately, but I got them. 
and uh, right. I flip back through. So I come up with an idea, something I want to talk about. I want to talk about time, or I want to talk about grace, or I want to talk about forgiveness. And we sit around. I say we. I've got two or three people on my staff that I like to bounce creative ideas off of. And we get a whiteboard. You can see my whiteboard right mm-hmm. over in my office. Uh, we lay out ideas, and then we try to package those up into series, into sermon series. Of, you know, Maybe we can preach on this one topic three or four weeks um, in a row and do it in a creative way. And so we lay out series for maybe four or five months, but then I come in weekly, and I don't write the sermon for that week until the week of. And what I do on Monday is I just start jotting down my ideas and synthesizing the thoughts that I have, and then... I don't do anything on Tuesday, but kind of church work, meetings and counseling and those kind of things. And then on Wednesday morning, I go back at it. And for half a day Wednesday, I try to lay out some kind of an outline about what I want to say. You know, what's the central point? What's the premise? And then we try to take, I get the other guys kind of back in the room and we try to take down maybe complicated uh, ideas and boil them down to memorable sentences, something that might work. And then they go away. And then, Thursday, I do a lot of more church stuff. And then Friday is just me. And as you guys are in here on a Friday, it's me, my books, my notes, my outlines. And I just hammer away and hammer away and hammer away. I don't write a a manuscript, um, but I write a bunch of stuff. People ask me for manuscripts. I say, well, I'll give it to you, but you're not going to be able to understand it because it's. I see you turning pages up on the stage. So it's a hybrid of notes. And if there's a quote, I I don't want to misquote anybody. So I have the whole quote Mm -hmm. written out. A lot. So I have notes. I've always preached with notes, and um, but it's not a manuscript. It's just a, a launching pad, and I'll pass by the pulpit and see where I am, or see it'll it'll reference some story. It'll say, "Tell, you know, basketball story," and I don't have the story written out, but it'll prompt me. Oh, I need to tell that story, and so I throw it all together, and somehow it comes out by Saturday night. So on average, how long? Would you say that it takes to complete a sermon from the origination of the idea through Saturday night? I think for me, it's probably for me, it's probably about ten to twelve, ten to twelve hours, maybe. Okay, I, I know guys and, and women too that will tell you it's an hour for every minute that you you speak. Right. I, I, I've never spent thirty hours on a sermon, and so I'd be lying if I told you that. But but you have. I mean, you give two sermons at least every Sunday, one in the main church, one at Cornerstone. Yeah, well, I do four. So do you, I do four. One, one Saturday night and then three on Sunday morning. So you do four. So that's, I mean, is that is that time estimate based on what the amount of time it takes to do all four? No, or just, just one? if you have a 30-minute sermon, um, some people will tell you, oh, that's an hour per minute, but I never have, I never have spent that much time. Uh, I spend about 10 to 12 hours wow. on every sermon. So, like, what do you do when you hit a creative roadblock, that wall? I mean, do you do you get up and walk or go play basketball or spend time with your family? I mean, I'm, in, invariably, that has to happen to you. It happens to, it would happen yeah. to anybody during the creative process. Um, yeah, I walk a lot. I listen to a ton of music, um, a lot of classic rock. And I will walk with my headphones almost daily, and that tends to speak. Probably, like, I don't jog, but, you know, joggers tell me they get pretty creative. And um, I get pretty creative when I walk and listen to music. But I will tell you one thing that's that's helpful to me, and, and maybe it's helpful to other ministers, particularly young ones, 
is when, when my dad preached, there was the myth that it was the preacher alone that had to go away in some cave uh-huh. and come up with every concept. That's really not the, tr- the case anymore. I, if I have a creative block, I call my staff in, and I've got three or four people on my staff, and we have like a little creative team, and we, we talk through stuff. And I'll say, I want to tell this story, does this work? And they will say, well, I don't know if that works, but what if you talked about it this way? Not to make up a story, but they may orient me to in different directions. And so the collaborative process in sermon writing now is significantly different than it was 20 years ago. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I, I think that myth that the preacher alone has to – and I write many, many sermons just me in a room. But there are days when you think, I don't have anything to say. And, I, and Sunday's coming, and you know maybe the Spirit works through – the guy in my office suite next to me today. So let's find him. And we have a lot of of fun with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it invites a lot of creative types into the process. And we love sitting around in a room saying, okay, we, we want to talk about this really difficult theological concept. How could we do that creatively? And how could we make it sticky so that a guy like Rob can understand. <laughs> a guy like Rob <laughs> can understand. Well, <laughs> we say this, and no offense to, to, to plumbers, but I always say, and truckers, but sometimes uh, seminarians on our staff will have these long, convoluted theological prose, and I say, okay, if you had to tell a trucker at a truck stop yeah, in one minute what you just wrote, how would you do it? Yeah. And it changes everything. Again, nothing against yeah. truckers. Uh, but it, it, we, we use that as a phrase, but uh, that's where the creative process is so much fun, and I think it makes modern-day preaching better. How, how critical are you of yourself in how you deliver a sermon? So you get up, you deliver a particular sermon, you walk out, say you come back to the office, and that's pretty simple, that doesn't happen. But do you have those days where you're like, gosh— Paul, I mean, I just, I just fumbled that, right? I could have, I could have <laughs> delivered it so much better. I didn't, I didn't really reach that high point like I wanted to, or maybe my analogy or my stories really didn't get through to the, to the folks sitting in listening to you. Every, well, if people only knew, if people only knew how haunted you were, and I think they always assume if you are, are somewhat decent with a microphone that you, you're packed with uber confidence. And maybe some days you are, but a lot of days you think there's no possible way anybody will ever come back to this church. And I'm really not making that up. I have many sermons where I preach and do go back to the office and think, okay, no one will ever come back here again. That was awful. (laughs) Um, You learn to work through that psychologically, that kind of self-loathing that says, oh, that was horrible. And I do exactly what you said. I think I wanted to say this, but I didn't get there. I wanted to emphasize this, but I shortchanged it. Uh, I wanted to wrap up here and I just went on and on. I had five sermons instead of one. Um, the good news is, a little secrets here, if, if you come to church on Saturday night, you get kind of the dry run. Now, I've been through my sermon at that point, so it's not raw, but it gives me an opportunity. I go home almost every Saturday night after church and hit the rewrite process. And so I go Saturday night and I go, I can't tell you how many times I've been home Saturday night thinking, I mean, throw that in the trash. Let's start over. Wow. And you just start digging and you put stuff together and you put paragraph four and where paragraph one should be. And, um, 
So you're a lot of fun on a Saturday night date with Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> my, it's very romantic at my house. On Saturday night. Uh, my yeah, my family has learned to leave me alone on Saturday night for sure. Um, but Saturday night's been a blessing. When I when I did it, I didn't know what it was going to do to my rhythm. It's it's made Sunday better, but it's because of that. I do come back and think, okay, that was an egg. Now I will tell you this, and this is maybe what keeps you sane. I have also learned that what you feel inside is not necessarily what the congregation receives. And that plays both ways. I have preached a sermon that I thought was a home run that to the congregation was a complete loser. They didn't get anything out of it. Uh-huh. And you know that from from feedback. Conversely, I've preached some stuff that I walked out of there thinking, okay, that's horrible. That was a disservice to God and everybody else on the planet. And someone will call you and say, Pastor, that you know, that that changed my life. You know, that made me rethink my marriage. And you think, okay, how did that happen? So I have learned that just because you feel that way doesn't make it so in the congregants here. And so I have learned to trust the process a little bit that just, just preach, just show up and preach and don't evaluate. I mean, you evaluate on Saturday night and try to refine it and make it better, but don't hit the panic button. I used to hit the panic button. Now I just stress, but I don't, I don't panic. So I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit here, uh, going from writing sermons to the outreach that the church has done. So the, the, this church has had a pillar has been a pillar in the community, and one of the pillars of, of its existence has been about outreach. So you take over. We we just had our the church had its hundred year anniversary, and this church is, you know, one of the top ten in the country of building homes for Habitat for Humanity. I know you were very strong with starting Munger Church, but one of the one of the items I heard you talk about is talking over, taking over from Mark and at the 100-year anniversary is making sure that we don't get complacent as a church. How important is it to you to really continue the outreach and do and help and, and make it bigger and stronger? Well, one thing I said at the uh, – we celebrated our centennial. I think if you think about life, uh, people, institutions, or buildings, very few things that you know that are 100 years old are in good health. I mean, most people I know that are 100 yeah. are, are, are on their way out. Uh, and really the same thing is true for buildings. And I mean, it's not necessarily the older you get, the better you get. Even businesses. And so you have to really work at it. And so on the one hand, when I recognized, oh, I'll be holding the baton at the 100-year mark, I was so honored and, and blessed and thought, what an amazing thing. On the other hand, I began to think, okay – you know, are we as healthy as I think we are? The good news is we're, we're more so, not because of me, but because of all the people before me. But uh, I really stressed, maybe for lack of a better word, of what do we do at the 100-year mark to make sure that 100 years from now, whoever's in charge then looks back and says, you know, I don't know what was going on in 2016, but I'm glad they did what they did. Um, and that haunted me. That haunted me. And the risk you run of any kind of centennial celebration is patting yourself on your back for the first hundred years and, Oh, look at us, look how great we are. And you certainly have to to do that to some degree, but more than that, I wanted to look forward and saying, are we shored up? Are we shored up methodologically and from a master plan standpoint and from a programmatic standpoint so that a hundred years from now, they will say, wow, I'm glad they laid that foundation. Cause certainly whoever was here a hundred years ago did that and planted the seed for a church that would be enormously strong in a century. So um, it's, it's a new, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's very haunting. On the other hand, you get pretty excited and think, what a great moment to. Yeah. So I, I know you've been to Africa three times, right? Three times. 
You know, what is it about Africa that keeps drawing you there? And I didn't really want to go. There's two places I didn't want to go in my life, but I thought you probably need to go. One was Israel, and I just thought well, every pastor with any credibility probably should go to Israel, but I didn't really want to go. And I went, and at the risk of having a cliche, it, it was life-changing. And Africa to me really was was the same. Uh, I don't know why Africa, and you know, why not East Dallas, South Dallas, West Dallas, North Dallas, I mean, there's poverty everywhere you look. And so, but there is something majestic. There is something majestic and regal about the continent of Africa. And there is something that's intangible, but deeply spiritual about Africa. And I'd heard that and I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Um, let's go see. But scripturally, we kind of all pick and choose what scriptures we hang our hat on. But when James says that perfect and undefiled religion is to visit the orphan in their distress and the widow, I really took that to heart. And I said, okay, where is there a gigantic density of orphans? Now, there's certainly orphans in Dallas, but where's the highest density? And Zambia has the highest density of orphans on the planet Earth. Okay, let's, go to, let's go to Zambia and see if that's true. And see if that scripture is true. And for me, it, it absolutely was. And so I went almost out of obligation, and but we'll go back willingly because it is life affirming, uh, God affirming for me. It's it's one place that I'm able to go. I'm not in charge. Uh, I don't have to lead anything. I don't have to lead a group. Make sure everybody's on the airplane, other than my family, my wife, and kids. And so we go for us almost selfishly. I mean, we hope the work we do is meaningful to the people we serve, but it grounds us. And there is something about the continent, though, that is so majestic and at the same time so sad because the continent of Africa you know, has every possible resource that you could ever need. And, and you name it, agricultural resources, gold, silver, copper, cotton, land, food, game, um, but it's in complete chaos. Uh-huh. And so you, know, you go over there and you immerse yourself in that and you think, okay – you know what's wrong, and then you realize how broken we really, we really right. are. And at the same time, not only do you realize how broken we are, but then you realize, okay, even the presence of God exists where brokenness is the worst. And now we've we've attached ourselves to several orphans that were were you know they're part of our life, and so we <laughs> we have no choice but to go back, and we we, we look forward to it. But uh, it's a special place, and it's hard to get to. But I, I encourage anybody. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's a very special place. Yeah. I've been twice for, for much more selfish reasons than to help orphans. But uh, <laughs> I've got this theory that it's really the battleground for Christianity because you've got so many countries, mainly on the north side, that have all this strong Muslim mm-hmm. population that are trying to forcefully convert everybody. And that the, the Christian Christendom needs to win the battle in Africa. There is no doubt it is ground zero uh, battleground for Christianity. There's no doubt about that. Your, I think your observations is is, is uh, accurate. Um, you have this almost a perfect storm of there's a high level of spirituality, and there's a very very high awareness of the supernatural uh, in Africa, much more so than in the Western states. Um, they pay attention to the su- supernatural, and but because of that, though, you know, the, the ground's open <laughs> for tilling, right? And so you pour into that with a thousand different messages, uh, whether it's whether it's Islam, whether it's uh, Hinduism, whether it's Christianity, whether it's witchcraft, um, and 
we have a chance to really a spread the good news of of Christ, but b to change to change the nation, not the way that we want it uh, as a, as a Western missionary going over there, but to find out what they truly need and to instill the principles of Christianity. So for me, it's a little less about conversion, although that's important, but it's about embracing the way of life uh, that we learn in Christianity and. Yeah, I look at the problems of Africa just like I do some of the problems in America, and I think, okay, what problem really couldn't be solved if we live more like Christ? I know that's oversimplifying it, but if you spread that, you're going to see something incredible happen on the continent. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions, whether or not it's Africa or, or in our own backyard? What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions about Christianity that, that keeps people away? Well— you know, we're at such an interesting time. Um, somebody said to me while I was in Africa, while I was in Africa, there was a, you know, all the horrible violence here with the police and, and back in Dallas. And I was over there and uh, there was a lot of two or three crises going on at one time. And somebody said to me, gee, it must be nice to be away from the church while all that's going on. The implication being that, gee, it was nice to be out of the epicenter of all that stress. Right. And it was the exact opposite. I thought, no, that's where I belong is at my local church. Uh, why? Because the problems of the world, not trying to oversimplify it, but can truly be solved when people begin to embrace the life of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very difficult life to embrace. But when that happens, you can begin to solve the, the, those problems. And so I think the world needs Christ more than ever. Um, buy low, sell high in the stock world. Well, we're pretty low right now, maybe culturally and spiritually. So we, we you know, we have really something to sell. Um, but millennials want to see. You didn't ask me specifically about millennials, but the world wants to see people walking the walk. And one of the problems of Christianity is it's a lot easier to talk the talk uh, from the pulpit, from where I stand and work, all the way into the pews. And I think the world is tired of seeing. Christianity, the, the the highest expression of Christianity being Christians that talk a talk but don't walk the walk, and so the challenge for me, and it's the fun challenge, is is how do you change that? How do you speak a truth about Christianity in a way that's compelling and memorable and portable, where people can go away on Monday and live out what they do on Sunday? But I, I think the world is is tired of of preaching and and quote Christians that are Christian in name, but not in action. And I just feel compelled to do whatever I can do in whatever time I have to. That's interesting that you mentioned that because just for the sake of my own honesty and transparency, I mean, there are moments when I'm sitting in church and let's say you're giving a sermon and, and I'm ready to go tackle the world, right? (laughs) Yeah. I feel good. Um, I'm inspired in some way. Uh, you know, you go home and that, that carries over, but then, you know, you wake up that next Monday morning and you go to work and then you kind of fall back into your, I'm not, I don't want to say bad habits or sure. not bad habits, but just maybe, maybe that message washes away slowly by then, you know, Friday and Saturday rolls around. I'm back to where I started before I rolled in the church the week before. I struggle with that. I'm I'm not the only yeah. one. Well, buckle up because in a couple of weeks we're about to launch a brand new sermon series about Monday. Why is Monday so disconnected from Sunday? Did I just did I just level. set that up for you? And you I didn't just even wrote know my it? whole sermon. 
Okay. And we'll give you full credit. Five bucks and for if, a, fact, a Rob Flint reference in, in church? We'll take a You should go up and preach plate. it. <laughs> no, I'd re- Maybe no. just a five-minute no, no, venue? No, no, <laughs> no, no. Hey, careful what you no. wish for, man. I'll call you up. That, that, no, but seriously, I but, mean, you know, I mean, it just... And it's not, you know, it's it's it can be church, it could be heck, it could be a business meeting, you know. I mean, something positive comes out yeah. of a of a meeting like that, and it just kind of, you know, I I have trouble maintaining, is what I'm saying. Well, you are 100 percent normal, uh, and you are certainly in the majority. Yeah. Well, uh, in the basket. I don't know that we can really say 100 percent normal <laughs> based on just that. <laughs> yeah. On my short there, time, yeah. there, there are several hundreds of people who just turned this podcast off after yeah. you, you said that. I lost all credibility as a mm-hmm. pastor. No, and that's good to know. I mean, that that uh, you know, but but you know, you going back to what you said about walking the walk. You know, I mean, if you're a logical person and and you try to think internally and introspectively and challenge yourself, you know, that's one of my biggest challenges as a parishioner. Well, I think it is the challenge uh, for everyone. And Western Christianity, at some point, inadvertently, I don't think they did it intentionally, but made church the end, not the means to springboard people back into the, the weekly work. Yeah. And so you would come to church, and that would be the end, and then you'd sign off your little guilt meter that you, quote, went to church, and you're okay. And yeah. You don't have guilt. But then you go back and be something totally different on Monday. And I, I think that's anything. Um, I mean, that's certainly yeah. not what Christ was was, was talking about. And so in, in, in basketball, we call that game slippage. That's where in practice, you, you go over a play a million times and you execute it with precision. But then you play and the opponent shows up and you don't run the play right. Yeah. Well, how could you not run the play right? We've been over it a thousand times. Yeah. Well, there's there's different there's a defense, there's a crowd yelling, there's all these other variables. And it really is, a, it's the same spiritually. You know, you, you, on Sunday, you kind of got it right. Yeah. Uh, but then you go back and there's variables. There's temptation, there's work, there's pressure, there's stress, there's bills, there's life. Um, you know, do you cut corners? Do you not cut corners? What are you rewarded for? Because frankly, a lot of the stuff we talk about on Sunday, the world doesn't reward you for. You know, nobody's ever called you in and said, I'm glad you're here. I want to give you a raise because you were particularly honest this week. Yeah. Uh, you are rewarded for closing deals. And so um, all that game slippage comes into play. And, and my goal and my challenge, and back to why I went into ministry, was is there a way for me to articulate the gospel in a way that eliminates game slippage as much as possible? Mm-hmm. And is there a way to share the gospel in a way that somebody on a Monday morning could apply just a measure of it? Mm-hmm. And that's the goal for me, not to say, oh, I like the preaching, I like the, or I feel good about church, but is there anything we do on Sunday that can drive them to a better Monday? That's my goal. And, and, you know, sometimes we get that right, sometimes we're woefully short of that, but um, it is the challenge of the faith. And you asked me a minute ago, you know, what some misconceptions are about the faith. That's it. People see that, and non believers see that, and they say, well, these people aren't the same on Monday if they profess to be on Sunday. And they think, why would I want to? Why would I want to be part of that? Um, and we got to figure out a way to change that. So right. the the demands of the job there there isn't any member of this church who giving themselves about a minute to think about all of the the responsibilities that that you have as head of this church. So. Obviously, Sundays are a big part of what you do. Heck, you you give you give a sermon on Saturday nights as well. But but when you factor in uh, weddings and funerals and counseling sessions, uh, visiting people in the hospital, so forth and so on, 
how demanding is that? Um, <laughs> not not you know not only of your time, but 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 mentally, because essentially you're on you, you're you're on call at at any moment's notice, right? Yeah, uh, I yes yes I yes, and all of those yeah. things are wonderful things. Yeah, I'm at not, the end of the day, uh, for whatever reason, the pastor is supposed to be on call twenty four seven and not just. You know, preaching is just a portion of the overall inventory of duties that you're required to do. Um, on the other hand, I have a good staff and a big staff, and we're able to divide and conquer maybe even a little more than you would at a smaller church. And so that's one of the upsides of being part of a big church is you can really focus. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know who decided this, but centuries ago, thousands of years ago, whenever it was, that somebody decided that whoever's good with the microphone is automatically good at everything else that the church requires, <laughs> visiting hospitals, handling budgets, and nothing could be further from the truth. But somehow we thought, oh, the pastor is uber talented in all of these categories. Um, so there is somewhat of an awakening, though, now in 2016 that that's not the case, that just because you can speak doesn't mean you can do organizational management well or, uh-huh. or vice versa. Uh, and just because you can do organizational management well doesn't mean you can hold somebody's attention for five seconds. Um, and so we're a little bit more sophisticated about compartmentalizing the duties of the church. That said, you still have to put your toe in all those categories. I mean, so yes, I do have to do weddings and funerals and, and visit hospitals and you just try to do them. There, there's a crazy high rate of burnout in ministry. It's uh-huh. insane. Um, really? That surprises me. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's, you, you see public ministry. I, I mean, I can understand fall. why. Yeah. But there's a there's a huge a very high rate of burnout because the demands are very high, and boundary setting is not very sophisticated. Right. Um, and you can't do it on your own. You have to have a, you have to have two things. You have to have people around you that help you and hold you accountable to certain boundaries. But you also have to have a culture, a worship culture that appreciates that. And I got to tell you, I, I don't. I didn't set it. My predecessor and his predecessor and his predecessor set it here. Uh, here, I'm really lucky. You, you get in trouble for doing too much. Uh-huh. You know, nobody worries that you're not doing enough, and that's not the case at every church. But uh, our committees that supervise me, you know, they always want to know, are you doing enough for your family and do enough for yourself? And are you turning your phone off at night? And I have enough staff, you know, praise God, that I can maybe evaporate a little bit every now and then. Can you, though? Because uh-huh. because I've seen you in public. Um <laughs> And, and and this is a good problem to have, um, and it's always nice when obviously somebody that's a member of the church says, "Hey, Paul, how are you doing? I'm so and so. You know, love the sermon on sa- on Sunday. Although I'd clean up the one on Saturday." Um, the, <laughs> but but you know, I mean, when you're with your family or when you're by yourself, I mean, that's that's your time. And I would assume that certainly more than Brett and I, you have people coming up to to you, and kind of like a mini celebrity, a local celebrity. Does that I don't want to say weigh on you, but I mean, are there times where you just kind of want to be left alone? Well, I'll tell you that it's it's harder on. I, I consider it a blessing. Yeah, I, mean, I consider it a blessing uh, to to be appreciated um, because if somebody comes up to you in public and says, "Hey, we like the sermon," that, that's a mark of appreciation. And so, at the end of the day, for me personally, it's a huge blessing and a bit of affirmation. Uh, my my kiddos sometimes wish it were a little different. Like when we go to a restaurant, sometimes they'll say, before we go in, they'll say, dad, 
don't talk to anybody. Just walk to the table. <laughs> and just walk. Don't talk because they want my time. So it doesn't necessarily affect me so much, uh, but there are times when my family wishes, okay, could, could it just be us? But I will tell you, that, having said that, uh, it's in a, I'm in a far better space having people affirm what you do than not what you do. And you just learn it's part of the gig. And But you're almost, I mean, you're, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? I yeah. mean, you, you, you know, on one hand, you are stopped to the booth before you get there because you see a you know, yeah. member of the church and you want to put forth a good foot, right? All the while knowing that your children may be like, come on, dad, <laughs> come on, dad, right? So at the table. And if you were to just walk by and then, oh, well, there's, there goes Paul. He didn't want to say pompous pastor. Yeah, he didn't <laughs> want to say anything to us. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's a it's a rhythm. I mean, there are days when we probably think, oh, gee, I wish, but uh, but overall, it, yeah. it's, not, it's not as much of a burden as as as, as people think. We're grateful. I mean, we're grateful that, that people appreciate what we're trying to do here, and um, my kids can just kind of deal with it. <laughs> so, you know, you, you've talked about counseling and, and it, whether or not it's somebody in the hospital or couples therapy or somebody that's grieving for a loss, does the seminary prepare you for that? <laughs> I mean, like you said, not everybody's great at those. So, I, you know, if I were a minister, going to a hospital, I, I just, yes. I, 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 I would not be good at that. I would not like it. I, I wouldn't, I mean, do, is there training that you go through to be able to I, I mean, not really. People come to talk to you about yeah. a lot of challenges. So, you know, if it's if it's a marriage crisis, I mean, how do you know that you're yeah. giving good advice? I I love my <clears throat> excuse me. I love my seminary experience, but I, I, I would be misleading if it, I was not well prepared for the pastoral care side of the equation. And that is a bit, I guess it's a little bit like a surgeon. You know, they can show you all the textbooks, but at some point you got to operate on a real body and just do it and figure it out. And that was pretty alarming. You just kind of have to figure out sensibilities when you're in the presence of someone at the end of life or in a crisis or maybe not the end of life, but in dire straits at a hospital. And and also maybe the end of life could be either or, but, um, and there's, you just can't replace experience. You just have to do it enough. And there's no formula, but what you learn is, is that the ministry of presence is more than, the ministry of having some, you know, formula or assuring words that you know are going to change the mood of the room. Uh, you just kind of have to show up. But I didn't learn any of that in seminary. I didn't learn any of that until after about 1,500 hospital visits. And then you yeah. think, okay, you yeah, know, maybe this is how you do this, and this is what you say, and this is what you don't say. Um, it didn't prepare you at all for that. Now, I, I think they're trying to change that a little bit. There are some internships now that you can do that are a little more intensive with pastoral care uh, that I didn't do. And I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, sometimes some of the younger students don't want to do all that, but uh, it, it's better for them. They just don't know it. Uh, you, but you just, you, you kind of have to be thrown to the wolves. I, I remember, uh, you could go through seminary. Well, let me just tell you, you can go through seminary for in three and a half years and not, not not only have not done a funeral, but not attended a funeral. Wow. Wow. If you think about that age, and then you're called, and I remember getting out of seminary, not having been to a funeral or attended a funeral, and my first funeral was a suicide Ugh. and of a young man. And I remember thinking, well, we didn't cover this. You know, I don't yeah. know, we didn't cover this. And well, the expectation to show strength on you, I think, you know, in the face of um, somebody being ill 
or on their deathbed or some tragic situation like the young man who killed himself. I mean, that, that, that to me would be difficult because you're human and you may know somebody that's involved in this and you want to show your emotion, but people are kind of looking at you as a pillar of strength, right? Um, and, and some people in certain situations may be questioning the existence of God because a loved one, you know, is no longer here. And, and you're kind of that, you know, that beacon of, of light. And, and I would imagine that that would be a pretty heavy burden to carry. Um, 20, you know, 24 seven. I struggle with, with, with funerals in particular because I'm kind of a namby pamby crier. And I always, sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to get through it. Uh You know, I don't like, I don't, I can get through the, I don't know how I can get through this. And so I'll start talking about the deceased. <laughs> or I look down at a widow or a child and I, and I think I'm going to lose it. Um, on the other hand, you're right. And this is an observation that a lot of people that work on a church staff don't even know. When you go to a funeral, you, you are expected to be a source of strength, but more important, you have a real opportunity to communicate the gospel in a, in a powerful and profound way. And it's important because here's why. I used to think that everybody that sat in the pews in a church at a funeral goes to church. They don't go to your church, but they, they go to church somewhere. That's not true. A gigantic percentage of them don't go anywhere. The only reason they're in a church is because their buddy died. Uh-huh. And there's a sense of obligation and cultural normalcy that, oh, I better go to the funeral. But they're sitting there, and inevitably they have questions about God or mortality or life or death or heaven or whatever. And they are completely vulnerable and open for the first time. And it's a very short window of time. Yeah. And I didn't know this early on in ministry. And then I, I learned it. I thought I used to think all these are church people. They're not, you know, a small percentage are church people. Everybody else is there out of obligation. So, uh, it's that sense that I, I think you can be, you, you do have to be uh, meaningful in the way that you communicate the gospel. I have learned though, that authenticity and vulnerability, even if you cry a little bit, or you know, kind of what we think is strong, is maybe not the best source of strength. And I think authenticity in the moment. Now, if you just got up there and wailed and wailed and wailed, you'd look like an idiot. But uh, you know, I think if you're authentically sad, I think people that don't know God look out there and think, "Oh, okay." Well, yeah. So, so we're we're starting to come to the end of this. So I really appreciate you being here, but I've, I've got to ask you the first time that you're in the pulpit and sanctuary and you look to your left, saw George W. Bush sitting there. <laughs> did that kind of make you start hands start shaking a little bit? Uh, it, it does every Sunday. Um, it's the oddest thing. It is something. And I, I've had a, just a couple, not, not, not many, but I've had uh, a handful of just, you know, personal audiences with them. And what a, cordial and awesome guy to talk to but in public there's something about the position yes that is hugely intimidating and i'll tell you i'm i don't know what we were said a minute ago four years into the senior ministry and i still get intimidated by it and our security guy will come to me on sunday and you know, of course you know, the bushes are in town they're in church and but they will come tell me you know the president miss bush will be here this morning and my heart rate goes up immediately every week, four years in, it still goes up. And I don't know why. Um, 
but it's it's the position and there's, there's it's, no, it's, it's, I look over there and so what you'll probably notice and I'm, he probably he probably notices it more, I don't look over there very often <laughs> <laughs> like, is something wrong with your neck you know why do you only preach to the right this side of the, the, the when, um, when my kids have acolyted at the early service on Sunday and I, I'll go there and see him because he always goes to the early service and it's taken so much. Rest- I'm a huge fan of his, so it's taken so much restraint not to go over there and just whipping <laughs> with so many questions. You know, like Chris Farley and Saturday Night Live. Yeah. You're so cool. Remember when? You Remember did- the that time? Was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that yeah. and the the security guards. You know, the Secret Service guys. Yeah. Too. It's but to this day, although he has been nothing but gracious and kind and affirming of the ministry here, to this day, when they tell me the president will be here this morning, my heart rate goes up. And I have a really hard time looking over there. So. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> well, Paul, thanks a ton for being here. I would love to to do this again later because there's so many questions I'd love to ask you, like, yeah. like uh, more along theological doctrine. Of, Anytime you want. Oh, I would gosh, love to yes. do it again and yes. really kind of dive deep into – you've got a good way of communicating. The way, I, the way I look at it when I go to your sermons, it's like, that's kind of what I was thinking, but there's no way that I could ever verbalize it. <laughs> and Paul did a great job of kind of verbalizing what I thought or what well, I thought I should think. That's what you know. That's why you're good at what you do, and and hopefully I'm somewhat accepted what what I do. But I'll, anytime y'all want, I'll, I mean, you got a lot better guests than me. But anytime you want, I'll I'll be happy to do it. This was fun. This was great. It's a lot of fun. Thank Thanks you a very lot. Much. You bet, guys. Appreciate it, Paul. So.